Well, we're in a series that I'm calling kind of the Absolutes series. And what that simply means is uh, we're taking three words, truth, justice, and love, and we're kind of going to talk about them in context with the big picture, meaning that we're going to uh, bring a perspective to them commensurate with their place in God's program. And the reason we're doing that is because I think these words, they're common words, they're common because they are so kind of ubiquitous all around, everywhere, show up in so many different ways. And because of that, we lose sight of the bigger picture and we tend to focus on instances of truth, love, or justice. And when we do that, we begin to lose the context that these things are absolutes. They're, they're kind of woven throughout the fabric of reality, of existence, of God's creation. And so last week we talked about justice, and, or two weeks ago we talked about justice, and we tried to show how it's analogous to truth. We understand the one with truth, and we're going to get to that one last, because I think there's a lot to be said about it, but we understand that truth corresponds with reality, that it's a right thinking in accordance with logic or in accordance with what is, and it, and it is governed in everything in front of us. There's nothing that doesn't have some aspect of existence or being or, or reality, and truth corresponds with all that. And what we said was justice is like that in the area of relationship. So if the fabric of existence and what is is truth, the fabric of relationship or ethics or what ought to be is justice. So it exists when you're not looking for it. It exists everywhere there's relationships. There's something that's governing what should be, what ought to be, for those things to be equitable, harmonious, uh, in good right standing. That's why one of the synonyms for justice is righteousness that we'd be in a right relationship with God and a right relationship with others. And so this concept of justice we explained as a necessity, as an absolute, as a universal. It's, it's kind of everywhere. And this morning I want to talk about love along those lines. We don't normally think about, well, you know, it's, it's strange. We think about love all the time because we think it's the chief of the emotions, so we're familiar with it being universal in that sense or important in that sense. We're not familiar in talking about love as something that ought to be in governing all of our emotions as we look at and intentionally value other individuals. So we, we are familiar with the emotion and it shows up everywhere, but getting the big picture and understanding that love has a demand on us at all times and it's not emotional is something that we're not really familiar with. So we're kind of launching into that this morning. And if you got your Bible, we're going to use it a lot. Um, I'm reading out of the NIV because this is the one I've had for a decade and it's easiest for me to jump all around in. Um, but what I want to do briefly is just talk about language. Language is an interesting thing if you study language at all, or the story of language. Words are constructed to map onto ethereal concepts, symbolic concepts, very tangible concepts. Um, 
we have an idea, and then we find a word to hook that idea. And the interesting thing about words is, as they're social constructs, I mean, there's different words in different cultures, right? The word itself isn't universal. It's, it's the thing beneath the word that's universal. But there's different words in different cultures. So words are social constructs. And because they're social constructs, they can shift over time. Uh, words can shift over time. We know this as, as we kind of go along that what a word meant to our grandparents sometimes is not what it means to us. I remember authenticity is a big word to my generation. I remember a professor of mine talking about authenticity in my generation and just saying this whole authentic, authenticity thing, it, it just, I don't get it and it doesn't make sense to me. And there was only one who was authentic and that was Jesus Christ. And I'm, I'm like, I... I don't, under, I don't think you're using the word authenticity the way we are. Um, we're using it transparent. We're using it as genuine. We're using it as real, hopefully not two-faced. It doesn't mean perfection, which is the way you're interpreting it to mean. Does that make sense? So words can, can mean different things, and they can shift over time and become um, fixed with a slightly different tone. Now, when a word gets stamped over here and you, you get acclimated to it, it's an incredibly hard thing to redefine or to change. You understand what I'm saying? When you, when you hook a word, it's a very difficult thing for that to be changed in your mind. If you grew up a Dallas Cowboys fan, you know that it's incredibly difficult for you to think anything but like disgust when you hear the, the phrase New York football giants, okay? And that's not going to change, ever. If you hear the word Justin Bieber, it's really hard for you to think anything other than let me giggle, you know what I mean? <laughs> there, are, there are words, social constructs that you have hooked in your mind, and now that you've hooked them in your mind, the cement is dried a little bit, and it's going to be incredibly hard for you to renew or refresh the definition of what that thing is. What was amazing in Jesus' ministry is that half of the work, it seems to me, that he was trying to do was to renew or refresh concepts that God had introduced and that culture, religious culture, had slowly shifted. Let me give you a couple of examples. He said, love, and the Pharisees said, of course. And then he said, no, no, no. I don't mean who you like or your tribe. I mean something different. And he would tell a parable of kind of a half-religious guy, a Samaritan, who defines what love is in his mind, and he would put their tribe, this is the parable of the Good Samaritan, he'd put their tribe in the, sto in the position of the people who didn't get love, kind of in that story. And he said, watch this, this is what love is, and guess what? Sometimes some of the, the least religious people get what it is better than you do. And not only that, 
But sometimes because you think you know what it is and you don't get it, you don't even have ears to hear or eyes to see. When I'm trying to tell you truth, it just misses you. All you're hearing is New York football giants. And so Jesus was constantly giving these parables and he was saying, listen, let me boil down the commands. You're asking me which ones are the greatest? Let me boil it down for you. It's loving God and loving others. These are the greatest commands. Jesus wasn't making that up. He was getting it straight out of Deuteronomy. He was getting it straight out of Joshua and a number of other places in the Old Testament that these people were incredibly familiar with. And he's trying to give them the same things that had always been there over again. But he was trying to refresh how they understood what that meant. Because he would look at, at them and he would say, you're tithing and you're doing the behaviors and you're doing the actions and you think you're loving God by these religious kind of pure things, but you're, you're barely even getting there. That stuff is good, but you should have done that without neglecting the weightier, meaning the more important aspects of the law, which is justice and mercy and faithfulness. And so what he was really pointing at is you guys have developed a religious language and a, a religious way of thinking that allows you to think you know what the thing is, but you're really missing the thing itself. You're missing the context. You're missing the big picture. And so Jesus would use justice and he would use truth or scripture to triangulate so that people would understand what love is. And what we're going to find out about truth, justice, and love are that there are three things that operate in different spheres but have this overlap shared space. And when you really want to understand one of them, you, you end up borrowing from the other two. If you really want to understand justice, sooner or later you have to talk about love and you have to talk about truth. If you want to understand truth, sooner or later you're going to talk about love and talk about justice. And if you're going to talk about uh, love, Jesus pointed to the Old Testament scriptures. Why? Because it was the authority on what was true and what God wanted. It was the standard. It was where we learned the information that God passed along. It's where the law was. So Jesus wants to talk about love and he reaches back to scripture and he gives truth. And then he says, and here's the example, and he gives stories of justice to try and define love. And so we have to understand when we come at this subject today that we have preconceived notions about love. We have some that the, the Pharisees, I think, had that are kind of typical, I think, of, of where we always gravitate. I think we have some that our culture has given us, music maybe, in the arts, but we're coming with an idea of what love is, and that's what's got to be challenged. So instead of going to the famous passages of the great commandment, love God, love others, I want to get a little bit to the side of that and try and understand what is this thing called love and how is it, not, how is it an absolute. So if you would, turn with me to John chapter 15. John 15. 
John chapter 15, Jesus gives this parable of the vine and the branches, the beginning of John chapter 15. And the whole idea here is, is this idea of remaining in him, abiding in him. And then he says, starting in verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love, and if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and so that your joy may be complete. Two things we need to pick up from that are commands, God's commands to us are connected to love. We can't remove God's commands from love so that they're two separate categories. It's one of the reasons that, that love is an absolute because it stands always through the Old Testament and then through Jesus giving it again in the New Testament. It stands always as a command, as a prime directive. And we can't separate that. The other thing we can't separate is joy from love. Jesus says, my motivation in trying to tell all this to you, I want you to obey my commands and remain in my love. And you know what? I tell you this so that my joy may be in you so that your joy may be complete. Joy is the luster of rightly ordered relationships that are in fellowship and experiencing unity and love with one another. Our happiness and the right understanding of happiness, our joy is necessarily connected to our being loved and our being able to be loved and being united with God that way. You can't separate command from love and you can't separate joy from love. And then it says in verse 12, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And then verse 13, this famous verse, it says, Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. There's no greater love than this, that someone would lay down their life for his friends. Jesus just defined love, and I think the way he's defining love is a concept we're familiar with, but we use a different word. If, uh, if I showed you a movie, frankly, um, there was a movie, so maybe I'll just, what was that movie? It was the comic, it was the Avenger? Was it the Avenger? No, the Captain America, Captain America movie. With the little guy that becomes a big guy? Is that Captain America? Okay. So, so here's the analogy, but it was in that movie. So you remember they're going through all these trials to find the right guy to go into the machine that's going to become like a big guy, superhero. And they keep going through all these trials, and this, the little dweeby kid uh, keeps excelling at all these different things. And, and what, the, the kind of pivot one where he kind of showed his true colors was they... they pretended there was a live grenade and they wanted to see what everyone did. So they threw out a live grenade and, and hollered grenade. And everyone else kind of ran, started running in all directions. And the little guy runs and jumps on the grenade and just squints his eyes. Remember that? How many people actually saw that movie? Is that okay? You remember that? But we're familiar with the concept, right? When we talk about war and all that other stuff. Jumping on a grenade. What's the word we use when somebody jumps on a grenade? 
honor. What was what did you give me? Courage. It's an okay word, not as good as mine. But <laughs> hero. Yeah. What I mean, you know what I'm talking about, right? Wow, that guy's got character. Um, what a hero. What what honor. Let's bestow a medal on that person for their valor. Jesus just defined love, the greatest example of love, as being willing to sacrifice the full measure of your own self-interest, your life, on behalf of others. And right away we realize that's not the definition we've got for love. Is it? How, how do you define love? How does our culture define it? We define love predominantly as an intensity of desire. We define love primarily, I'm going to give you a secondary one, but we, we define love primarily as an intensity of desire. The greater I desire you or someone or something, the more I love it. Does that seem fair? Secondary definition, the degree of devotion. I love the Dallas Cowboys. Or I don't know, a better example would be like the Chicago Cubs, you know, They've never earned my love. They've never, they're never gonna earn my love. Um, but I stay devoted to them. I love them. They're my team. First definition, intensity of desire. I need, I crave, I want, I have to have, I'm obsessed, I love Second one, um, degree of devotion, which means I'll stay with it. I'll stay with it. Is that, is that fair? I made him up, so you, 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 know, you can disagree with me. Do either of those really hit at the heart of what Jesus is saying in John 15? Jesus is pointing out that the essence of love is sacrifice. Is sacrifice. The essence of love is sacrifice. The opposite of sacrifice is selfishness. Jesus is saying you want to really understand what love is, you got to take your eyes off yourself and be willing to sacrifice your interest for the interests of others. That's why when he began to see selfish patterns in his disciples, they were arguing about pecking order and who was going to be the greatest and who was the most wonderful and worthy of honor. Jesus says you don't even understand honor. True honor isn't about you at the center. True honor is about sacrifice. And so let me show you what this is. And so in John 13, he takes on a robe and he begins to humble himself and wipe dirt off of people's feet. Uh, what happens when you mix dirt, uh, like dust with water? 
becomes muddy. Mud is the height of mess. I just made that up too. Dirt, <laughs> dirt like bothers us, you know what I mean? Like dust, you know? But then all of a sudden when that dust gets messed with water, it's like, oh no! Like now it's going to get muddy or be like, and you're washing people's feet and it's coming off in your hands and it's muddy and he is serving these disciples and, and Peter says, absolutely not, Jesus. You're, you're to be honored. I'm your disciple. I love you. I, I, I'm, I have this devotion to you and this intensity of, of emotion toward you. Never will you wash my feet. Stand up. I should be washing your feet. And, and Jesus says, you don't understand. You don't understand, Peter. You don't understand. You don't understand. I have to wash you or you can have no part of me. This is the essence of love. And if you don't receive my love, how will you be made clean? And he begins talking figuratively about the true example of his sacrifice, which is going to come a couple days later, which is him dying on the cross and giving his life for his friends. Do you understand? And so he says this to Peter. He says, listen, Peter, you got your categories mixed up. You got your, your Justin Bieber words mixed up. And I'm trying to help you understand. I've got to do this so you can have no part with me. And then Peter says, then not just my feet, wash my whole body. And Peter is struggling to understand, I think, but he's slowly getting pieces of it. And he's like, if this is what it means, if this is what it means to be united, if this is what it means to accept love, then yes, I'll accept your service of me. If I honor you, you will serve. I can accept your service because that's your love. And so we find Jesus teaching that when selfishness begins to run amok, Who's the greatest disciple? That the corrective to that is reminding them that service is love in working clothes. That service is what love looks like as it moves itself out into the world. It's a humbling of oneself and sacrificing for others, giving your life away. Turn to Philippians, if you would. Philippians chapter 2. In the New Testament, one of Paul's letters. And Philippians, fascinating book. I used to read this book all the time when I was a new Christian because it talks a lot about joy. And I was addicted to reading about joy. I had gotten the idea growing up that God was anti-fun, anti goodness, anti-joy, anti-beauty. He was just this dour figure. And so when I became a Christian, these books, uh, Philippians, Ecclesiastes, James, I used to just soak them in. Um, if you think God's a killjoy, you should read these books too. But Philippians chapter 2, listen to what it says about Christ. We'll start right at the beginning of chapter 2. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ... If any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Who's got their Bible open? What's that next phrase say? Having the same love. 
Okay, so we're supposed to have the same love as Jesus because that's the perfect picture of love. Well, what's the perfect picture of love look like? Having the same love, being one in spirit and in purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition, that's the opposite of love or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should, should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the worst form of death, death on a cross. He did it right. Verse 9, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. I've been running through a phrase in my mind lately. God doesn't expect us to be perfect. We understand that, I think, if we understand the gospel. If you think God expects you to be perfect, then you don't understand the gospel because the gospel is about the grace that makes up the difference, uh, the grace that, that makes you perfect in God's eyes, the grace that makes him see Jesus when he looks at you. Okay, Imputed righteousness means we get Jesus' report card. Okay, So the phrase, God doesn't expect us to be perfect, but he expects us to be obedient. God doesn't expect us to be perfect. He expects us to try to be obedient. See, sometimes when we think we get the hall pass with Jesus' righteousness, that then it's time to sit back on the couch and pull out the bag of chips because the work is over. But this whole passage is holding up an example of Christ and saying, here's the example that you should be laboring and wanting and praying and striving to be like. You're never going to do it in your own strength. You're going to have to lean on God. You're going to have to pray. You're going to have to pick yourself up off the ground. You're going to have to say you're sorry when you get it wrong. You're going to have to continue to throw yourself back on God's grace. You're not going to take credit for it when you're doing it right. But in all of this, you're looking at this example and saying, with every ounce of my being, I want to go from being this to, to this, to more like this. And it's not going to sit back on the couch with a bag of potatoes. It's going to be wrestling to follow Jesus in discipleship. Do you know that discipleship is always a noun? It's never a verb in the Bible. And we get it so jacked up. you, you got 600 people here that will in the Christian culture will, will tell you that discipleship is a verb, meaning I or someone else in this church should disciple you. And if we're not discipling you, then, you know, really, we're, what a crappy church. And poor little you, that somebody's not discipling you. But discipleship is a noun. It's what you are when you commit to follow Christ daily. With all of your being, picking up your cross, following him daily, because that is your whole centering principle, is I'm going to be found here. And if I go astray, I'm going to come back. If I get lost, I'm going to cry for help. But everything revolves around this at the center. I'm a disciple. 
And I don't care what my church does or does not do for me. I'll work really hard to find mentors, but it is my responsibility to realize becoming like Christ is the prime directive. And I'm not going to become proud that I'm some kind of great disciple and it's all me. When I realize John 15, the vine and the branches, I realize that it's my connection with Christ that completes the electrical circuit and makes the whole thing work. But the whole point is I'm going to be there. Seven letters to seven churches. What's the famous part? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. You guys are having your, your meetings You're talking about me, maybe. You're talking about spiritual things. You're talking about what you're going to do for each other, but you haven't even invited me in. I'm not going to force it on you. You have to choose to be a disciple. And if you do that and open the door, I will come in, I will lead, I will bless, I will nurture you. It says in James, quoting Jeremiah, if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. If you seek, you will find. If you ask, it will be given to you. And Jesus is like, "Um, I help you do it. Paul is like, you should have the same love. You should strive to have the same love as Jesus. What does that love look like? It looks like not looking to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Of humbling yourself so low that if it was required of you, you would give parts of your life or you would sacrifice your life itself so that others may live. That you would literally be willing to give your life away. Literally. It's our slogan here at this church and I think sometimes like with that, we can begin to give it a social constructed meaning and and, and make it sound nice and fluffy or spiritual. But we're talking about a faith where we leave all to be disciples of Christ. And when Jesus ran into people that were wanting to, to be a disciple because there were some advantages to that, but then have their other life because there's aspects of that that they like too, he just walked away and said, you just don't, you don't, you can't have a part of me. The rich young ruler, no. No, you can't serve both God and mammon. Uh Uh-uh. The guy that wanted to go back and just take care of all of his social duties and bury his father and and wrap up all his affairs, and Jesus said, no, uh uh-uh. You gotta be all in or nothing. Everything now gets done in relation to me. How you treat your family gets done in relation to me. Now, I'm probably gonna tell you to go love him. It's probably gonna be what I'm gonna tell you to do. But don't say, I got to go love my family, then I can come center my life around you. That's why Jesus says, unless you hate your mother, your brother, your father, your children. He's saying, listen, you have to value this properly if the thing's going to drive and work. He says, foxes have holes and birds have nests. I don't think that's actually what it says, but I'm trying, there was another animal, like a, anyone remember? It's foxes and what? It is birds. All right, um. I have a hopeless, hopelessly big picture of mine, so I can't memorize actual verses verbatim. I can only memorize concepts. Um, it is birds, though. All right. And Jesus is like, you want to follow me. First thing you have to do is realize this is not the path to comfort. This is the path to wholeness. This is the path to joy. This is the path to unity. 
if you want to center your life around comfort, then you really aren't going to be able to have a part of me. So we realize that selfish desires are antithetical to sacrificial impulses and willingness to give self away. Jesus is saying, this is love. This is desire. Selfish, worldly ambition or desire. What did we say the number one definition of love is in our culture? Intensity of desire. What did we say the number two thing was? Devotion. Let me go take care of my father's house before I come follow you, Jesus. Jesus, I am devoted to my wife, my kids. I can't be a disciple. I can't give my life away. We define love even in the church in a very in a way that's incredibly close to just the pure definition of selfishness. Do you see, do you see the shared space? Let's uh, look up 2 Corinthians, if you would. 2 Corinthians to the left of Philippians. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians... Chapter 5, starting in verse 11. 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 11. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. We, we get, see, we get the picture here of discipleship. And so we go out with a sense of urgency trying to sell and persuade so that people will have an aha moment and understand this whole thing. There's an urgency to Jesus' followers that I don't know that we always have. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. It's a mouthful, isn't it? Okay, so let me break it down for you. These crazy radical dudes are going around giving their life away, preaching the gospel, getting nothing but shame or, or, or rocks thrown at them with the, with the intent of killing them. And they do that because the love of Christ that they've experienced, the joy and the unity from a life with Christ compels them to proclaim what they know to be true And that Jesus died and he died for all of us that we could all live. And when we live, here it is, that we should no longer live for ourselves but for him who died for us. If you are alive in Christ, 
Your life is not your own. It has been bought with a price. And your life is spent best when it's spent not on yourself. If perfection was a bar for being a preacher, I'd walk off the stage right now. Because I don't know about you, but that is shatteringly overwhelming to me. That I should no longer live for myself, completely not for myself, but for him who died for me. I should be a disciple 100% noun, regardless of what anyone else is doing. Man, and I, I don't know if I have ever perfected that in any given day. But here's how it continues. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. What's the number one definition of love? Intense desire. What brings about intense desire? Usually worldly things. Beauty, wealth, power, pleasure, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. I don't care if you're poor, if you're in Christ, you're my brother. I don't care if you are a tax collector, you slandered me. I don't care if you're now in Christ, you're new, you're made new, you're made clean because of him. You're my brother or sister We regard no one from a worldly standpoint. I don't care if you're unattractive, undesirable, have no influence, no power. I value you because you're valuable. I value you because Christ died for you. I don't care if you have all the wealth, all the power. If I'm playing favorites to that, that's silliness. Because frankly, you're probably the one that's gossiping about me the most. That's what James says. Book of James says, why are you catering to these people? The ones that have all that are so wrapped up in worldly affairs and politics. They're the ones that are making your life miserable. Why are you catering to them? The poor people actually want to be your friend. We don't regard things from a worldly standpoint anymore. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Another mouthful, but here we go. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. We tell the, word, we tell the world by our words and our example that we belong to him. Jesus says to his disciples, people are gonna know you belong to me, by your love. We are Christ's ambassadors by our word, how we live, as though God were making his appeal through us. God's message is being delivered through us. We implore you, therefore, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So truth and justice coming together, defining this space called love. And love is what? Sacrifice. 
love is measured in sacrifice. All right, let's jump ahead. If you want to go further on how love masquerades and that we can so easily think of love in terms of desire, frankly, by the way, that's the word lust actually fits that definition, intense desire, okay? Um, so our view of love is, is actually the definition of lust. Isn't that strange? If you want to see how this whole little masquerade game works, the two best books I've ever read outside of the Bible that show you different facets of love would be C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, and then my favorite book of all time is C.S. Lewis's Till We Have Faces. Especially if you're intuitive, read Till We Have Faces. You'll be reading it halfway through going, why am I reading this book? I don't understand it. And then you'll get to the end and you'll be like, my life will never be the same. It's a novel, so you should be able to make it through. Um, Great Divorce Until We Have Faces. All right, I want to turn somewhere, and we're going we're gonna to hit this from a different direction and kind of in closing. Turn to Haggai. Turn to Haggai. I've been waiting for five years to take you guys to Haggai because there is one of the most powerful, poignant moments I think in all of Scripture that happens in Haggai. Haggai is one of the last three books of the Bible, uh, Old Testament, sorry. It's the third to the last. So Haggai, now this is a post-exile book. So Jesus, or God's people became selfish. In becoming selfish, they, they treated each other unjustly and they walked away from God. God gave them over to being taken captive, a form of punishment. Then after that, you get the return. That's the exile. Here's the return. They come back from, from uh, being in exile, and the idea is you need to build the temple. I am still here. I'm the one that led you out. I even prophesied beforehand that I was going to bring you back, okay? I'm still your God. I haven't gone anywhere. Build my house. Build my house. The people started building God's house and then, you know, they kind of started fighting with each other a little bit and then they got apathetic and then they got distracted. And listen to what gets said here. Haggai, chapter one. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiai, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. He's like, look, first words to the people right now. They are saying it's not yet time to build God's house. I told them to build my house. And I didn't change my mind. I haven't changed the the due dates. I haven't changed the schedule. Why are people going around saying it's not yet time to build God's house? God usually sends a prophet when he's got something emphatic to say. Here's the emphatic first thing. Uh, I told you to clean up your room. I don't think I changed my mind. Somewhere between a half hour ago and now. 
uh, companies here in one minute. Why is your room not clean? These people say it's not yet time. Really? Then the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai, verse 4. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Dang. Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on your clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. You're striving, 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 striving to get ahead. And guess what? It's not really working because I'm working against you. You're turning the wrong direction when you're striving or trying to to make it all work yourself. Get your priorities straight. Serve me and let me take care of you. That was what I was bringing you back to this land to do. You're already beginning to go down the wrong path that I disciplined you for just a short time ago. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Almighty? Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. So here's the drawing. God's house has columns. We'll see if this works. There's our house over here with a chimney. God is saying, this is the priority. Now, you didn't build it. Why? Well, I, I need shelter, man. I can't just live out under the stars. There's animals and there's bandits. I got to build a house. Okay, I got four walls. Is it time to go build the temple? No, no. My wife wants paneled walls. It's what it said in there. Paneled walls. I got I to gotta go and we got to panel the walls um, in here. Well, is it, is it now time to build out? No, I'm actually tired. I need to rest because my wife really ran me ragged and I got paneled all the walls. Okay, now is it time to build the house of the Lord? No, I actually did all this on credit. I actually got to work off my debt. Well, now is it time to, to do this? Now the paint's starting to come off on the outside because it's now been two years. I, this summer I got to repaint my house. The homeowners association sent me a letter. Sorry, I got I to do this. What God is saying is you are taking care of your own interests. You're always putting these ahead of my interests. There's always going to be something you need, you want, you wish, and you have intense desire for, or that someone you're devoted to is wanting out of you. There's always going to be one of those, and God is saying, I don't care, because I didn't command you to do any of that. I commanded you to do this, And if you did this, I would have multiplied your time and your efforts and your money. And you probably would have had enough to do that as well. Because I measure your love for me in your devotion or sacrifice or willingness to be obedient or willingness to be found with me and being a disciple, a follower. And if you continue down this way of always looking to your own interests, pretty soon 
um, in that selfishness, I'm going to have to discipline you because you're wayward. You're off track. I am not your true love. Jesus says the greatest commandment. You love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You build his house first. And God's like, I know you feel like you're religious. And I know you feel like you're good. But you don't love me. You don't love me. You think you do because you talk about me or you have the cross hanging above your fireplace. But you actually really don't love me. And so here's the crazy intense thing. What is God's greatest desire and priority for his kingdom right now, 2012, in Bend, Oregon? Do, you, do we even know? Have we asked that question? What is God's greatest thing to build his kingdom right now? Matthew 9, Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful, meaning what God wants to bring about. Harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Why? Working in the spiritual kind of harvest field doesn't really fit self-interest. So Jesus says, man, there's opportunity all around. God wanting to build the kingdom. There's only a few people willing to tow up. What in Bend, Oregon right now does God desire most out of Antioch Church? Out of us, out of his body that he should be commanding how it works in this culture? Do we know the answer to that? Yeah. And I guarantee you it's going to be more than just devotion and it's going to be more than just felt emotion. It's going to lead to us serving God. There's too many churches out there already, I can recommend some to you if you want, where it's all about intense desire for God or intense devotion to God on Sunday between 9 and 12. But no discipleship, no service, no labor in the harvest field. That's, that's spiritual work. What did Paul say? Most people could think we're fools, but by, by the, the love of Christ, we're compelled to give our life away. We're compelled to sacrifice, which is love, which means we are just obsessed with loving God by serving God. What is God's bottom line for us? What does he want us to do? What is your bottom line? What is the number one driving desire in your life right now what are you obsessed with job money status career future family finding a spouse because you're single what what are you obsessed with intensity of desire because here's what Haggai says this is why five years I've been waiting to preach this passage these two are in competition Those two are in competition. I believe 
that this church can make the biggest dent for the kingdom any of us have ever seen. I really believe that. And it's going to come by this being a community where we're fully bought in to serving God together. Now you can say, well, um, I don't have a place to serve. You want to know what's so funny about churches? They're a lot like your home. You want to know the number one thing you can do to make the church the healthiest it can be, just like the number one thing you can do in your home? Affirm and forgive. You hold the greatest power in your hands to make this the greatest church through your affirmation rather than criticism and your forgiveness rather than holding on and choosing to to feed on, on bitterness rather than reconciliation and bringing it all together in love, the ministry of reconciliation. And some of you have unbelievable capacity and you need to come out of retirement. I don't care how that church burned you. I don't care that you don't have the energy. I don't care that you think all the people serving at Antioch are young, so maybe I just don't need to do it. This church needs a bunch of you that literally have been given many talents, like the Bible passage. Uh, We need some people to come out of retirement. But I, I, I really am intrigued with this question, wanting to know, what other than showing up on Sunday mornings to experience church or manifest our devotion both of which the Pharisees did, by the way, right? They were there. They were at the temple courts. They followed all the little religious things. They even tied. They even, you know, spliced everything up. They dotted all the I's, crossed all the T's. Experience and devotion, intensity of desire and devotion, the Pharisees met that bar. So I'm not just talking about saying, but what does God want us to do? How does he want to use you to create a part of what he wants us to do? And as you sit there today yourself, ask the question, which desire is the dominant desire that's waging war against what God would have me do? Because self-interest, intensity of desire will keep us from being a disciple. That's a noun. All right, we're going to end by reading 1 Corinthians 13. And we're going to do it in the King James Version. You want to know why? Do you guys know what the the three sisters are named? This is from the U.S. Forest Service. The three sisters appears, the three sisters on Preston's map of Oregon, 1856. The name was probably originally applied by members of the Methodist Mission in Salem in the early 1840s. And the individual peaks were given the names Mount Faith, Mount Hope, and Mount Charity, beginning from the north. I always had it backwards, by the way. Mount Faith, Mount Hope, and Mount Charity. 1840s, Methodist mission, Christians. What Bible were they using? King James. I want to read for you 1 Corinthians 13 in the King James. We've got Latin here. King James Um, For a thousand years, the Latin Vulgate was the Bible of the church. This is the end of 1 Corinthians. 
And, and you see that word at the end? You know what that word is in English? Charity. Until the 1880s, this was 1 Corinthians 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not charity, I am becoming a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, if I don't, so, so even if I have some of these things, if I have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself. It is not puffed up. It doth not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own. It is not easily provoked. And it thinketh not of evil. It rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth, bleh, but rejoiceth in the truth. It beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth, but wherever there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether they be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. When I was a child, I operated a certain way naturally. When I grew up and matured, I put this away because it was no longer fitting of me as, as an adult. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I, I know even as also I am known. And so all, in all this abideth faith, hope, and charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. Every time you look at those sisters, let the word charity, which has a totally different sense of sacrifice and opposite of self-interest built into it, remind you that love is more than just intensity of desire or being devoted to something. Love is a sacrifice, a giving away of yourself. It's giving your life away. Father, we, we commit ourselves to you Please show us your will, not only in our life individually, but in this church's life corporately. Draw it to the surface, shape our minds around it, help us understand that it is your call for us, and God, let us be found serving you in your kingdom and, and being obedient that no matter what our desires are or our energy levels, that we would put other things, we would put you and others above our own self-interest. God, change this church to be more like your son, that we would be faithful ambassadors, faithful witnesses, that people would see your love shining through us because we know that you are love. In Jesus' name, amen.